For those of you who are visiting with us, we are making our way through the book of Genesis. We are in Genesis chapter 33. And I'll read the passage as we work our way through the sermon. Let's pray. Father, I ask for your uh, blessing to be upon your word. I pray that uh, your word would uh, not only impact our ears and our heads, but also our hearts. Father, I ask that uh, your spirit would use your word and accomplish every purpose for which you have sent it. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. There are a few sermon illustrations that make the rounds. Uh, If you've been in church for any length of time, you've probably heard the story that I'm going to tell. In fact, I may have already used it in uh, in previous years. Uh, The story goes like this. There was a young boy that was brought before Alexander the Great. He had stolen a horse. And Alexander had seen how young this boy was and one of the officers was pleading in his behalf. So Alexander the Great decided to go easy on him. And when he was getting, after he spoke to the young boy, he was getting ready to release him. Alexander the Great asked this young boy, What is your name? And the young boy replied, Alexander, sir. Alexander the Great grew furious. And he asked him again, What is your name? And the boy, this time with fear in his voice, said, Alexander, sir. And in anger, Alexander the Great threw the boy to the ground and he pointed at him and he said, Boy, change your conduct or change your name. God changed Jacob's name to Israel. And God changed Jacob's character into a man who feared God. But yet, there was still a part of Jacob that was still rightly named Jacob. Even as believers who love God and who strive to trust Him in everything, we still revert to our own ways, don't we? Why do we do that? Why do we, even if we know that God loves us, knows that Jesus died for us, and we know that God hates sin, and He's given us His Holy Spirit to live in our hearts. Why do we still revert back to our own ways? We read from Galatians 5 in our responsive reading. In Galatians 5, uh, verse 17 gives us a little hint why we do this. The Apostle Paul says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. As a believer, we want to obey God. Because as a believer, we have a new nature in Jesus Christ. Plus, we have the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And He lives in our souls. And so we want to obey God. We want to please Him not only in our actions, but in our thoughts and even in the deepest motives of our heart. 
but we still also have what the Apostle Paul called the flesh. And so the flesh, according to the Apostle Paul, is the reason why we do things that contradict our new nature in Christ. So then the question is, what exactly is the flesh? First of all, let me address a, a common misunderstanding about the flesh. When we talk about the flesh in this sense, in the sense that the Apostle Paul used it, he's not talking about our, our physical bodies. Uh, some, some people think that the Bible sets up a contradiction between the spiritual and the physical, so that the physical is somehow viewed as being evil. That's not what the Apostle Paul means here when he talks about the flesh. Um, this idea of the flesh being evil or the physical world somehow being evil, that's, that just reflects philosophical uh, or Greek philosophical teaching that denies the goodness of the physical created world. But that's not the biblical worldview. The Bible asserts the original goodness of the physical world. God created this world. And even though the entire creation was corrupted by Adam's fall, it is not, never will it be, inherently evil. This world, though affected greatly by sin, is still the world that God created. And so this war that takes place within us, as Paul, as Paul said, the spirit and the flesh, these are opposed to each other so that we don't do what we want to do. This war that takes place between us is not a war between the body and the soul. Rather, it is a struggle that exists within ourselves. It's a war between the new life that we have in Christ, the new life that is created in us by the, by the Holy Spirit, and the sin nature which continues to remain in us and will remain in us all our lives. There's a guy named John Kerr. And he gave one of the clearest examples of, of, the, of the flesh and the work of the flesh within us that I've ever heard. He, he, John Kerr says, This is one of the sorest trials of a renewed life, that it is built over dark dungeons, where dead things may be buried but not forgotten, and where through open grating rank vapors still ascend. And so the picture is, like if you're walking down New York City on a cold night and you have the steam coming up from the grating in the streets, well, what he's saying is our that, that, the, that underneath that grating is a cemetery. It's a cemetery of our old dead nature that God killed in Christ. But what happens when things die? They rot and they begin stinking up the place. And so John Kerr says that these rank vapors waft out of our, uh, out from inside us and, and uh, evidence themselves and, and desires that are not pleasing to God that uh, result in actions and thoughts that are not pleasing to God. So all of us have the stench of the old nature that is still wafting up into our daily lives. We're going to see the evidence of Jacob's new life uh, here in our passage in, in Genesis 33, but then we're also going to 
going to very sadly see the rank vapors of Jacob's previous life wafting up into his life as well. And unfortunately, these rank vapors that waft up into his life are going to bring with them very tragic consequences. We've grown accustomed as we've been looking at Jacob over these past few weeks. Uh, we've grown accustomed of Jacob looking out for Jacob first. So it doesn't surprise us then that Jacob has sent everybody over the river, over the the the, uh, the, the, the Jabbok River, in order to meet Esau. However, uh, Jacob. And well, Jacob stayed behind, but he doesn't stay behind for long. Because when it comes time to see Esau face to face, Jacob is not back behind everybody. He's out in front of his family. Look with me at verses 1 through 3. Uh, of chapter 33, Genesis 33. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked... And behold, Esau was coming and four hundred men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants. And he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. This is surely evidence of Jacob's transformed life. Jacob was completely, utterly at Esau's mercy. He had no assurance that Esau's attitude toward him would be favorable in any way. All the evidence pointed to the opposite. Here is Esau coming with 400 men. And there would be nothing to save Jacob if Esau decided to attack. All that Jacob had between himself and Esau was the promise of God. God's promise that he would bless Jacob. God's promise that Jacob would live and dwell in the land of Canaan. God's promise that his descendants would grow to be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. That his descendants would in turn be blessings to other nations. Jacob had that promise, but that was all. And so, this is pure, unmixed trust in God on Jacob's part. This is the type of faith that God is calling us to have. This is the type of faith that God is calling you to have. Pure, unmixed Trust in God. I want you to notice especially the posture that Jacob took as he approached Esau. Look closely again at verse 3. It says, He himself went on, of course, before them, before his family, bowing himself to the ground seven times. And the idea is that Jacob would walk a few paces and he would prostrate himself completely on the ground, showing complete submission to Esau. Then he'd get up and go a few more steps and prostrate himself again. This went on seven times. 
In other words, this is a sign of deep humility on Jacob's part. By the way, if you were to look back to Genesis chapter 27, verses 20, uh, verse 29, you would see that Jacob's actions are actually the reverse of the blessing that he received from Jacob. Um, and so what Jacob is saying here to Esau is that I don't deserve your mercy because I stole your blessing. You are to be bowing down to me because I stole your blessing. That is what the blessing said. But here I am, acknowledging my wrongdoing. I am bowing down before you. To show, to show symbolically that it was a complete, um, com- complete submission, he bowed down seven times. Now here's a practical point that I think will serve you well. Because we often live with broken relationships. We're all sinners. We're all going to splash each other with mud from our lives. And there's going to be broken relationships from time to time. Humility goes a long way toward restoring relationships that are broken. Someone's angry at you, whether it's deserved or not, humility will go a long way toward restoring those relationships. Humility will go a long way towards averting anger uh, of another person. It's very difficult for a person to remain angry at a person who is in all humility expressing their sorrow. And sure enough, what does Esau do when he sees this expression of humility? It says, verse 4, Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him and they wept. Now the text doesn't tell us exactly why Esau melted. It wasn't simply because of of Jacob's show of humility, although I think that was wise and proper for Jacob to do that. The real reason that Esau melted was because of God. Kind of like from Sunday school this morning. God's working in the background. God doesn't say that He so worked in Esau to change His his attitude toward, toward Jacob. But that's obviously what happened. And so let's continue reading. Verses 5 through 11. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given to your servant. Then the servants drew near, and they and their children and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Because remember from last week, over 550 animals um, and servants were sent on ahead uh, and were given to Esau. And so Jacob answered halfway again in verse 8. Jacob answered, To find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, No. Please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from from my hand. For I have seen your face 
which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and Esau took it. But here is where we were reminded as we transition from verse 11 to verse 12. Here's where we were reminded that Jacob is still rightly named Jacob. Some of the rank vapors of Jacob's um, old life come wafting up through the open grating. Because see, Esau wanted to accompany Jacob on his, on his journey and provide protection for him. You know, it was very dangerous. You're going through a lot of hill countries. Uh, the geography there as you're moving from, from uh, uh, Penuel uh, down to uh, the Jordan River Valley, there were a lot of steep um, ledges and whatever, and it would be easy for someone to attack uh, defenseless Jacob. And so Esau wanted to accompany him, provide protection for him. But in Jacob's mind, always <laughs> thinking of himself in some way, he wanted to be as far away from Esau as possible in case Esau... Decided to change, decided to change his mind and his attitude toward him changed. So Jacob begins with exaggeration in uh, verse 13, but then descended into outright deceit in verse 14. So listen to verses 12 through 14. Then Esau said, "Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you." But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. Well, Jacob had no intention of following Esau. Uh, first of all, uh, Seir was outside the land of Canaan. And secondly, we know from the text that Jacob planned to break off from Esau. As soon as Esau got out of sight, he planned to break off and go his own way. And so verses 15 through 17, again, if you'll look at your copy of the, the Scripture. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Succoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. So what did Jacob do? After Esau uh, left Jacob, then actually what he did is he turned around. He recrossed the Jabbok River and then he settled in Succoth. This is interesting to me. Succoth is not in the land of Canaan. Uh, it, Succoth is about five miles east of the Jordan River. And so Jacob settled down. He built himself a house. He made booths, or what we might call stalls, for his livestock. God's promise said that Jacob would live in the land of Canaan. Specifically, God's promise said that Jacob would live in the city of Bethel. But Jacob, it seems, thinks that it would be safer to live in Succoth for a while. It is inexplicable 
that Jacob would not immediately obey God. But think of your own sins. It is inexplicable that we would do many of the things we do when we know it displeases our God. We don't know how long Jacob lived in Succoth. Um, be that as it may, uh, we see in verse 18 that he did eventually cross the, the Jordan River and he settled in Canaan. He did not, however, go to Bethel as God had instructed him. Instead, here it is for those of you who are in Sunday school, he came to Shechem and bought some land and settled there. So let's read verses 18 through 20. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Padam Aram, and he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. The old Jacob is very evident. Uh, he was a man who did things his own way. He moved in the right direction by finally leaving Succoth and moving into the promised land, uh, but he's far from obedient. At best, Jacob is only halfway obedient. Um, sadly, however, halfway obedience is no obedience. This is a strategy that many Christians try in their own lives. They have faith in God, but for whatever reason, they stop short of full obedience. They go as far as it is practical. They go as far as it is easy. But to obey God uh, and trust Him when times are difficult, when the circumstances are tough, well, that's just too costly. And so we often stop short. You can think about tithing. Do you believe that tithing is a, is a biblical practice? Now, I know there's some, uh, there's some disagreement between Christians on, the, on uh, tithing. So let me state it a little differently. Do you believe get, that you should give generously to the cause of God's kingdom? And I would hope that all Bible-believing Christians could uh, agree with that statement. So then the question is, are you giving generously? You see what I mean by obedience to a point and then when things get difficult, our obedience becomes optional. We move into the promised land, but we settle in Shechem rather than moving the extra 25 miles to settle in Bethel where God had told them to live. Let me ask this question a little more widely. Uh, a little more widely than just in regard to finances. What is your general attitude and practice in regard to being faithful to God? Are there areas of your life where you are saying to God, off limits? I know your word addresses this issue, but it's off limits to you, God. I am not going to go where you're calling me to go. This is essentially what Jacob is doing. 
And when he got to, to Shechem, he made a good show outwardly of his spirituality. Verse 20 says that he built himself an altar, and he called it El, Elohi, Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. Sadly, however, God was not pleased with this token act of worship. And while Jacob was refusing to move that extra 25 miles south to where Bethel was located, um, God, God was not pleased. Now it's impossible for us to know why, why Jacob stopped short of moving to Bethel. Um, we do know, however, that his partial obedience was really complete disobedience. We tell our children, slow obedience is... Yeah, I see Abby mouthing it. Slow obedience is no obedience. And I remember one time, um, one of my children, I told them to take out the garbage, and they took it, took the garbage out to the trash can, and it was a little too heavy. They didn't want to exert themselves to lift it up and into the trash can, so they left it beside the trash can. Of course, you know what happened. The animals in the neighborhood got to it. You know, they, they hauled it. 95% of the way there. I mean, they laid it beside the garbage can. It was resting beside the garbage can, touching the garbage can. You think I, I counted that as obedience? No. Especially not when I was out there cleaning up the garbage that had been strewn everywhere. Why am I making a, such a big deal about Jacob's partial obedience? Well, we're going to see next week that Jacob and his family are going to pay dearly for settling in Shechem. Jacob's daughter, she barely got a mention as all the other children were being born, but Jacob's daughter, we're going to see in chapter 34, was raped by the son of the leader of Shechem. In other words, there are consequences for disobedience. We don't like to hear that, but it's true. There are consequences for disobedience. We like to believe that God wants us to be happy, happy, happy all the time, time, time. Really, God wants us to be holy. And He will sacrifice our ideas of happiness in order to produce holiness in us. Galatians 6, verses 7 and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one to sows, uh, the one who sows uh, to his own flesh, from the flesh will reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Therefore, let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. There's always going to be a reaping. The question is, what is it you're going to, that you're going to reap? Is it going to be things? Are you going to reap a lifetime of happiness and blessing because you have sown the fruits of faith and love? Or are you going to um, reap the dire consequences of your shortcuts and your partial or optional obedience? It does not mean that God does not love you if you are reaping dire consequences. Rather, it means that God loves you and is so eager for you to be like Jesus Christ that His sweet grace 
can be brutal in your life. Now to encourage you, if you're experiencing the consequences of your obedience or lack thereof, it's helpful to know that Jacob made it to Bethel in chapter 25. I'm sorry, chapter 35. Kent Hughes, in uh, commenting on this passage, says God's relentless, tenacious, intrusive grace would have its fearsome, loving way. Jacob made it to to Bethel. You know what he did, and we'll see this in a couple of weeks. You know what he did when he got to Bethel. He cleaned out the idols. Everybody went through any idols they had, any false gods they had. They took them and they buried them to get them out of their life. Just because we revert back to following the flesh or we stop halfway in our obedience, it does not mean that God will stop halfway. God doesn't meet us in the middle. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes we make in the Christian life. Is we think, well, we've got to do our part and God's got to do His part and we meet in the middle and if we don't do our part, God won't be faithful. (laughs) That is a a tremendous mistake. It's just the opposite. We wouldn't even start our halfway were it not God taking the initiative and coming to where we are, whether it be dead in our sins as an unbeliever or whether it be... um, Uh, acting in the flesh as a believer, it is always God coming to us and drawing us back to Him. God will always, always, always fulfill His promises. Romans 8.29 says, Those whom God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That is a promise. From eternity past, if God has loved you, He has predestined, therefore promised, to conform you to the image of His Son. Paul's thought continues in verses 8, uh, I'm sorry, verses 31 and 32 in Romans 8. It completes the thought when, when Paul says, If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. And I'm paraphrasing here. He will certainly, along with Him, graciously give us all things. You can take it to the bank. Why will He give you all things? Because He has promised, He has predestined to make you conform to the image of His Son. He has promised to make you holy. Even if it means that you have to suffer consequences that are utterly beyond your ability to endure because of your partial or wayward obedience. So the question is, as we close... Do you trust God to do this in your life? Do you know that He loves you so much that His grace might be brutal in your life? Do you know and trust that He is intent on making you like His Son, Jesus Christ? Let's pray together. Father, in looking at Jacob, we see ourselves... He is a mirror for us this morning. Father, Your Word says 
that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh so that we do not do what we want to do. Thankfully, because of Your work in us, we want to honor You. Thankfully, because of Your work in us, there's a war within us. If we were still dead in our sins, we would just joyfully be going on our own way without the warfare. But You have created us anew in Christ Jesus. Therefore, You have created this warfare. Encourage us, because I know the battle is long and wearying. But on the other hand, still our, our faith to trust in You and uh, rely on the Spirit that we might not gratify the works of the flesh. We ask in Jesus' name, Amen.